Good morning, Sil, and to everyone in the sanctuary as well. Um, okay, let's uh, begin this way. Uh, I'm looking for Singapore's brainiest Methodist, and this is a bit more specific, worship servant, as they call them nowadays, those serving in the uh, worship services and ministries, like singers, musicians, etc. So, here's the question. Um, in Christian music, what do the initials SDG stand for? Well, I'm waiting for the... Okay, SDG. Not Singapore dollar. That's SGD. Uh, anybody? Justin? No, no. Okay. Anybody here? At the earlier service, it was not a uh, worship servant, but a member of the congregation that answered. No, obviously this. The previous Methodist search has to continue. Soli Deo Gloria. And that means, because it's in Latin, for God's glory alone. You can see SDG um, appeared on the composition of composers like Bach and Handel. So hold on to this thought. Now that the church-wide series is over, uh, pastors are basically free to preach whatever they like. So I've just chosen to stick to our church theme for this year, which is Love God. Um, and so that's why this series is called, or whatever is left of it, Love God 2 point something. So today is 2.1, glorified. We need to agree two things. Firstly, we need to agree that if we love God, we want to glorify Him. To live SDG. Soli Deo Gloria, for God's glory alone. Is that correct? Can we agree on that? I think so, huh? And secondly, well, you've got to wait for that one. How do we glorify God? For many of us, what immediately comes to mind is uh, to participate in acts of worship like we are doing now. To sing, to pray, to give God praise and honor and adulation. And today is also Passion Palm Sunday. There used to be two separate Sundays, but now they've been combined. But one of the things we commemorate this Sunday is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And all the four Gospels record this. In different ways, but John, the Gospel of John is the briefest, so let's read from that. John 12, 12 to 13, which says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. We can say that this is glorifying God. But, is there more? Is there more? So, let's take a step back to a more fundamental question. Before we can think about glorifying God, we must ask, what is God's glory? What is God's glory? If we want to glorify God, we need first of all to know what His glory is all about. The problem is, some of us 
<clears throat> for some of us, maybe many, the current common understanding may actually be a distraction instead of a help. The chief of which is this concept of Shekinah, or what the tele-evangelists in the US call the Shekinah glory. Sorry for the fake accent. Um, to add to this, many of us think of God's glory in terms of His power, His splendor and majesty, and the accompanying pyrotechnics of fireworks, like the cloud and the fire, the thunder and the lightning. So let's try to set the record straight. I think it's more important what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? Now, firstly, Shekinah, not Shekinah, it's a mispronunciation, comes from a family of words that has a very wide range of meanings. Normally, it uh, concerns dwelling or shelter, but it can also mean even the nest of a bird or refer to a neighbor. In the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 24, verses 15 and 16, um, this is what it says, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt, here is the word Shekinah, dwelt Shekinah on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Another passage with the word is Exodus 40, chapter 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled. So settled is Shekinah on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. From this it seems to me that in the Old Testament, Shekinah refers more to the presence of God rather than His glory. The presence of God rather than His glory, because uh, other words are translated glory in both these passages. Furthermore, this is not how God Himself describes His own glory. So, let's get to the second degree. Now, if we say to God, <clears throat> God, please <clears throat> show us what your glory is like, if He answers, then His answer should be definitive. That would be it. Can we agree on that? If we say, God, what is your glory? And God says, this is it. That must be it. Correct? Okay. So let's look at Exodus 33, verses 18 to 22. Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. I think the last sentence is probably inspiration for the hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. So, in Exodus 33, 18, Moses says to God, Show me your glory. Now, the first thing to note 
that it really appears to be a very dumb question. Isn't it? Why? Well, the Israelites have escaped from Egypt to reach Mount Sinai. There Moses receives the Ten Commandments, which proves that the tablet came before the iPad. That's another story. <laughs> and other instructions like <clears throat> building the tabernacle. Now he's gone so long, the Israelites get impatient, they build and worship the golden calf. Moses comes down, smashes the tablets in anger. And lots of people get killed. God sends a plague. Moses goes back up the mountain to meet with God again. In the middle of this second interaction, he says to God, show me your glory. But how come? Come on! Before this, Moses has seen the plagues and other demonstrations of God's power in Egypt. They follow the cloud by day and the fire by night. They have crossed the Red or Reed Sea which has drowned the Egyptian army. They come to Mount Sinai with its own brand of fire and cloud display. And yet, you've got to be joking. Moses still says to God, show me your glory. What more can, you know, why? Now before we go further, <clears throat> I give you a guide prompt on Bible vocabulary. In the Old Testament, the word for glory is kabod. Kabod or kabod? Antonio. Kabod. He's the Old Testament professor, you remember? In the New Testament, <coughs> not kabod, kabod. In the New Testament, the word is doxa. There are those Pranaka and Malay not dosa, but doxa. What it's essential to note <clears throat> is that the basic biblical concept of glory is weight. Which explains why, for example, 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Richard Strauss, a Christian author and pastor, I think, says it very succinctly. I got this uh, straight from the web. When young people want to know that something is of major importance, they sometimes say, man, that's heavy. The subject of glory is in this category. It is heavy. As a matter of fact, the most common word for glory in the Old Testament comes from a root that literally means to be heavy. In Old Testament times, a person's weight was his glory. Now, not to cast too fine a point on it, and no need to boast, but among the pastors in our church, I am the most glorious. <laughs> no dispute, right? Adrian is some glorious, but unfortunately, Antonio and uh, folks, they are Ichabod. No glory. No glorious. Refer to 1 Samuel 4.17. So back to Exodus 33. Moses' dumb request. 
God, show me your glory. And what does God do? He doesn't say, you've got to be kidding. What more can I do? He says, yes. He says, okay, I will. But you see, his response is also peculiar. God says, I will show you my glory by letting my glory pass before you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And then, in Exodus 34, God does this. It happens. From verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what does this mean? How is this the answer to Moses' request? Show me your glory. What has God proclaiming his own name got to do with his glory? What about his majesty? What about the splendor of the fire and the cloud and the rest of the fireworks? You remember our second agree? If we ask God, what is your glory? His answer is definitive. It is final. Yeah, There is no appeal. According to God himself, his glory is his name. You forget everything else about this sermon, this is the only sentence you need to remember. God's glory is his name. What does this mean? In the Bible, name is the person. Jacob, Chief, Peter, Rock, Jesus or Yeshua, which is the Old Testament version of Jesus' name, Savior. So again, God's glory is his name. His name is what he is like. So God's name or his glory is his character, his nature, his attributes, personality if you'd like, his likeness. Theologians have given it a technical term, imago dei, it's Latin for the image of God. And this is how God describes himself. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, full of love and faithfulness and forgiveness, yet holding the guilty accountable for their sin and all its ramifications. This is God's name. And this is God's glory. So let me introduce you to biblical mathematics, a Bible equation. God's glory equals name equals likeness equals image equals character. And in the New Testament time we can also include two other parts equals Christ-likeness equals, if you'd like, even the fruit of the Spirit. So that's why in the light of this we can understand better, for example, John chapter 1 verse 14. 
John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He put instead of glory, God's likeness and image. He has dwelt among us, we have seen His God's likeness and image, the likeness and image as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We sin and fall short of God's character and image, not the fireworks and the pyrotechnics or even His majesty. Because in Genesis, it says we are created in God's image and likeness. That image has been distorted by sin. And that's why we fall short. We fall short of God's character and likeness and image that we are created in. All have sinned. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory or the image and likeness and character of Christ who is also the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 For God who said that light shine out of darkness and has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory or character or likeness of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The image of God is Jesus and vice versa. So especially in the New Testament, whenever we see the term glory of God, we substitute God's character and likeness and it clarifies the meaning of the scripture. Actually, I, although I only realized this biblical meaning of God's glory after studying in seminary about 35 years ago, I should have realized it much earlier than that. But I also was too distracted by the peripherals. You see, in School Christian Fellowship and uh, MYF, that is Youth Fellowship, this is 1960s and 70s, we used to sing a song by J.W. Peterson entitled, In the Image of God. And these are the lyrics. In the image of God, we were made long ago for a purpose divine. Here, His glory to show. But we failed him one day and like sheep went astray, thinking not of the cost. We, his likeness, have lost. I'm only quoting you the first verse because the lyrics deteriorate after that. I think he lost the inspiration, but never mind. But in this one verse is the whole truth of this entire sermon. I could have just said this and said bye-bye. But then you would not have learned so much, I think. So, the final part is, if God's glory is His likeness and character, how then do we glorify Him? How do we glorify Him? You know, 2 Corinthians 3.18 has a wonderful promise for all God's people. Paul writes, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, His likeness and character, are being transformed in that same image from one degree of glory to another. King James Version, from glory to glory. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, God's people 
are called to grow increasingly in God's image and likeness. We said uh, we are created in that image, sin has distorted it, but Christ restores it gradually. And we are called to grow more and more in the image and character of God. That's why Christian character and Christ-likeness is our goal. So, we glorify God every time we live up God's likeness and image in our lives. Have you got that? We glorify God by living up Christ's likeness, God's image in our lives. And we are to this to do this as we the image is increasingly restored in us. So, enough of the theory. What would God's glory look like in real life, so to speak? Yeah? Well, um, this is a famous sermon illustration. Uh, I'd call it a parable about God's glory or glorifying God. I don't really know if something like this actually happened. But anyway, let me tell you the parable. Ron. The names are always changed to protect the guilty. Christian businessman, trying very hard to live out his Christian discipleship, but because of the pressures, finding it very difficult. So this morning he prays, Lord, please help me to be more Christ-like today. Lord, please help me to be more Christ-like today. And he heads for the MRT station. At the station, there's a boy, about 10 years old, noning, carrying a box with a fully assembled jigsaw puzzle. Now, don't ask me why he's doing this. It's only a parable. It doesn't have to make real life sense. Ron is running late. So, he dashes to catch the train and collides with this young man so that the jigsaw puzzle becomes a puzzle all over again on the station floor. The boy does the only manly thing he can think of. He bursts into tears. Now Ron sees that if he runs, he can catch the train. But he also remembers his prayer. So he Let's out a loud sigh. It's supposed to sound like this. <sighs> he gets on his knees and starts picking up the jigsaw puzzle pieces and putting them in the box. Now the young man, the boy, stops crying abruptly and with his gawking eyes as wide as saucers and his mouth a gate wide enough for a train to go through he says, almost in a whisper, Are you Jesus? Do you see God's glory in that parable? And how we may glorify God? So let me end with this uh, real life story. No parable anymore. Actual real life. One of my heroes is... E. Stanley Jones. I don't know if anyone has heard about him. E. Stanley Jones. Methodist missionary to India. Came to Singapore quite a few times. 
uh, known as Billy Graham of India, and he led a Christian retreat movement. He, he, he established his ashram or retreat in India. Well, the story goes that he had been supporting a prominent person in India financially, but it came to a time when he could no longer do so. The money had run out. And this man, instead of being grateful for all the help, actually turned against E. Stanley Jones and attacked him publicly in the press. So, a very upset E. Stanley Jones sat down to write a reply to defend himself. The kind of reply that was as nasty as can be. In my days, he was called a stinker. And the reply would utterly destroy this person. And as E. Stanley Jones puts it, it's the kind of reply you're proud of the first five minutes, then you're not so sure the next five minutes, and the third five minutes you know you're wrong. But he still wanted to do it, so he, before he mailed out the letter, he asked the whole retreat, all the people in the ashram, to review the letter and give him their opinion. They sent the letter back with just three words. Not sufficiently redemptive. And E. Stanley Jones was crushed and devastated that his own defense was rejected by the people who were his friends. So, he knew immediately what it meant. In his words again, a Christian is not in the business of winning arguments, but winning people. He tore up the letter, and then he prayed, Lord, now you have to take care of my reputation. As it turns out, a few weeks later, uh, the person, the other person who attacked him, sent a letter of apology. That seems to me, this is a wonderful way of glorifying God and living out His glory in our lives. And as Jesus would say then, go and do likewise. Let us pray. Dear God, our Father, we sometimes are distracted by the peripherals that we think are the main meaning of what is your glory. Help us to uh, correct ourselves. Help us to see the true nature of your glory and how we can truly glorify you. In this time of Holy Week, help us to see your full glory on the cross so that we can do likewise. Amen.